Amen. We'll get our Bibles out. Uh, we'll start tonight in Luke, the ninth chapter. Luke chapter 9. So this marks our fourth installment in this series, Broken. We're looking at um, various things that uh, seek to sabotage our walk with God. We've talked about uh, the issue of character. We talked about anxiety. Last week we had just a joyful time, didn't we? Talking about attitude. And tonight we're going to deal with passing the reins. So what might that be? Control. Aren't you glad you're here? It's going to be a blessing. Now, as a recovering control freak, I'll confess to you that passing the reins is not hard for me because if I got reins in my hand, I want them out of my hand because I cannot stand riding a horse. It scares me half to death. But when it comes to control, it's a struggle. Let's pray, and then we'll study together. Father, we thank you for this time you've given us to be together. Thank you for your word and how it will instruct us tonight. Lord, we pray for your spirit to move among us. Lord, help us. Give us ears to hear, hearts that are ready to receive, that we might be transformed by the things you'd like for us to uh, hear and know tonight, Father. So use this time for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Luke chapter 9, verse 23. Boy, it's a very obscure verse that you probably never heard before. Super familiar passage of Scripture. 9.23, Jesus says, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake, will save it for what profit is it for a man if he gains the whole world and himself is destroyed or lost. And what Jesus is communicating here is directly an affront to our desire to have control. If you think about this issue of control, I recognize that I'm going to have to spend the first part of this message just uh, barraging you with this never-ending uh, repetition of proofs that this is a problem for all of us in some way, shape, or form. Uh, we're not certainly not all equal, and it's just like all of these uh, things that we've been addressing on Sunday nights, but this is an issue for all of us, and this is why so much of the Bible speaks of this. And Jesus is confronting this uh, desire for us to have control. And it's always been at the issue, at the, the heart of the problem. In the Garden of Eden, the whole uh, temptation to turn your back on God is, well, has God really said that? Why don't you take control of your own life? Why don't you gain control of it? Why don't you be like God? And so it began, and so it's continued on and on and on it goes. I mean, you just read the book of Genesis. It's like a, uh, it's like a, uh, just a, an autopsy of control. It's one control issue after another it, with, you know, from start to finish the whole book of Genesis. And then we just take off for the rest of the scripture and it's just uh, more of the same. And so what happens is, is that when we attempt to control things, when we attempt to, you know, harness or get control of uh, our circumstances or people or things around us, we begin to work against the very thing that God has intended from, for us in the beginning. And so when Jesus says deny yourself, he means let go. When you, you, you deny yourself, you let go. See, whoever seeks to save his life will lose it. But you've got to lose your life in order to save it. And so when we attempt to control our life, what we actually do is lose our life. See, control is... Uh, is directly connected to other negative circumstances and situations in our life. And the connection between them uh, leads us down this terrible path. But it begins 
with control, or, or at least it, we, we address it when it comes to control, but really underneath control are all these other things. I mean, if you stop and think about it, why do we even want control in the first place? It seems like the last thing we want. You know, I, I ask myself this question. I mean, what? I don't want control of anything. All it is is a giant headache. I'd rather just somebody else be in control of everything. Just take that off my plate. But we have these reasons underneath our control. So like, for example, some of you might struggle with control in certain areas of your life because you've been wounded in the past and you don't want to be further wounded. You've been hurt by something and you don't want to be hurt again. And so your control is sort of out of this uh, some past experience that's caused you harm, and so you try to control things so that that doesn't happen again. And that makes perfect sense. I mean, I totally understand that. But it's still futile nonetheless. Or maybe, maybe your control issues aren't because of something that's happened in the past. Maybe you're not trying to control things because uh, you've been hurt in the past. Maybe you're trying to control things because you want things to stay the way you like them. You see, sometimes control takes the, the, the evil form of just trying to manipulate circumstances and situations so that they remain how you want them to be, how you're comfortable with, what you like. You can use control to try to leverage your preferences in all sorts of situations, so you think. And so, I mean... This issue of control, just look at how it rears its ugly head in religion. We talked a little bit this morning in the sermon about legalism. What is legalism? In other words, what is it inside of uh, humanity that wants to make rules that God never made or wants to enforce laws or traditions that God never ordained where does that come from what makes churches get all wrangled up in that control you see legalism is a way to control to keep church how the way we like it that's what the whole thing is if you've ever heard of a church that's split I don't need to know the church, and I don't need to know the circumstance. I'll tell you exactly what happened. There was a struggle over control. Every church that's ever split, split over control. And so that's, I mean, it's everywhere, you know. And so if we want church to be a certain way, just impose some legalism. Start making up rules that aren't really rules. Start making up stuff that God doesn't say, but it keeps things the way you want it to be, and there you go. You can keep church how you want it. So we need to learn some things about control. Where does this come from? Control is fueled by, it's driven by fear. Under the desire to control is always a bed of some fear. So there's not this desire to control unless there's fear involved in the equation somewhere. There's no control without fear. And, you know, uh, fear is not of God. The only fear that's of God would be the fear of the Lord. The Bible says in 2 Timothy 1 that God's not given us a spirit of fear, but a power and love and a sound mind. Fear is a fruit of the flesh. And so when we're fearful... Our flesh is, is in control. It's a fruit of the flesh. And so all of us have fear. No one that you've ever met, nor will anyone that you'll ever meet, be fearless. That's impossible. Because they have flesh. And if you have flesh, you have fear. People have struggles with that to different degrees. But if you have flesh, you'll have fear. It's a fruit of the flesh. And so where we have uh, this, where there's flesh there's going to be fear and the fruit of the spirit would be faith and those two things are opposing to each other that's why Jesus said in Matthew chapter 8 why are you fearful you of little faith why does he connect those two things 
Because faith and fear are in opposition to one another. Faith is a fruit of the Spirit. Fear is a fruit of the flesh. Fear can only exist in a place where faith is floundering. There's got to be a breach in trust. There's got to be, there, if there's total trust in an area, then fear can't exist there. And there are areas in life where, where there's total trust, especially when it comes to kids. You know, I mean, I've used this illustration before that um, my children, I can remember when they were growing up, they, uh, you know, I always say that one of the things I'm so grateful for in my daughter is that she's a big chicken. Because I don't have to worry about Kayla putting herself in danger. That's just not going to happen. And if she puts herself in danger, it's because she's running from danger and hurts herself running from danger. I mean, Kayla, she's 20 years old. She's about to be 21. She's not in here. Is she good? She... she don't tell her I told you this would just be between us. If she's, she's 20 years old, if she pulls up at the house and no one's home, she just sits in the car. At our house. She just sits in the car. She'll call up and go, Mom, where are you? She, she, you know, Lisa will say, well, we're so-and-so. And she'll say, well, when are you coming home? And if it's like more than 15 minutes, she's like, well, I'm going to Mama's. She's not going in the house. Or she pulls up, if anything's out of the order, she's out of there, buddy. So if me and Lisa go out of town, trust, Kayla's not at my house. But here's the thing. When dad is home, now when I leave, what happens? Everybody sleeps in one bed. But when I'm home, there's absolutely no fear. The thing about it is, is that, you know, that's not really a, 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 a wise, rational way to see the situation because I'm not Superman. But to them, I'm Superman. And so there's no fear when dad's home. None. Like at least they're thinking, well, you know, he'll die first. And so, you know, we, we'll have time to run. But you see, if there's, if there's a breach, if somehow they lose, you know, if there's a, a bump in the night and, you know, Lisa hears something, or Kayla comes downstairs and says, I think I heard something, you know, and I say, well, I'm not going to see. <laughs> then she's going to start being fearful even when I'm home because trust is going to get breached. You see? And so we all have fear because we all have flesh. The question is not do you have fear. The question is what do you do with your fear? How do you resolve it? When you recognize that you have fear in your life and that you're afraid of something, well, what do you, how do you respond to that? How do you deal with that? Do you go to God and you turn your fear over to Him? Or... Do you try to control or manipulate the situation to alleviate the fear? It's so, it's so much more common than we think. I mean, the Bible says that uh, since fear is not from God, and fear drives us to control, that in Romans chapter 8, 31, here's what the Scripture says. What then shall we say, the Apostle Paul says to these things, if God is for us, who can be against us? What exactly are we afraid of? What, if you are a child of God, well, why are you afraid? What are you afraid of? What, what thing is out there that makes you able to be afraid? Jesus would, would make the case to you that a child of God should not fear anything ever anything except for him now that's that's a big statement because if if death is looking you in the eye 
It's scary. But yet we see across history and even now in our current time, we see people who walk with the Lord and who are not afraid of death. So Jesus says in Matthew chapter 10, Do not fear those who kill the body and cannot kill the soul. I mean, that's the greatest fear of all. Every fear is trumped by the fear of death. Because what would be the point? If you're dead, then it doesn't matter. So it's the ultimate fear. And Jesus says, well, you shouldn't fear that. You should only be afraid, but rather him who's able to destroy both body and soul in hell. Only fear the one who has command over life, death, and all of eternity. You see, if, if control, having control over something, if, if it had a name, what would we name it? What would we call control? Well, let's think about control for a second. You can do everything right in your life. You can take perfect care of yourself. You can eat perfectly. You can exercise You can go to the doctor, get checkups. You can do everything right, get cancer, and die. You can live your life with every possible precaution there is under the sun. Get in your car and get hit and killed by a drunk driver tonight. So, how's this control thing doing? You know, if you think... uh, From this very day, if you go back a year from now, just try to think back one year from today in your life. Think of all the things that you utterly had no earthly idea would be going on in your life, and yet they're a reality right now. I mean, think about it. How are you doing on control? How do you... How are you managing all of the situations that are bombarding your life all day long, continuously? I mean, isn't it true? Life refuses to be tamed. There's absolutely no way you can tame it. About the time you think you've got things managed, it blows up in your face. It's just futile. You cannot, under any circumstances, control your life. And you utterly and completely have absolutely no chance to control the lives of others. And yet that's where our control manifests itself. Trying to control our own life and circumstances and then trying to control the people around us, their life and their circumstances. So if control had a name, what would we name it? I think I got the perfect name. Puff the Magic Dragon. Because that's what it is. It lives down by the sea in a town called Honolulu. You know, it's a it's Puff is from Hawaii. I mean, every good Hawaiian boy knows Puff the Magic Dragon. And so, Puff the Magic Dragon, this figment of our imagination, that's what we should just call our control. We ought to just name it that because that's what it is. I mean, every parent. That, that strives to control all the, the actions, circumstances, and behavior and influences of their child. You, you strive to have control of them. At some point in time, you're going to realize that it's all Puff the Magic Dragon. And that your child, just like every other child that's ever lived, is going to grow up and make their own choices. And going to make their own decisions. And hopefully all of the things that you put in place are going to influence all of those. But you have no control. None. You can do everything in your power to be the best spouse imaginable. You can love your wife or husband with everything that's in you. You can try to do all the things that you think that they want you to do. You can try to live up to all the the prerequisites that you think they have in their mind. You can devote yourself to utter discipline and be the best spouse possible. And at the end of the day, guess what? Puff. They're going to decide whether they're going to 
receive your love or reject your love? I mean, I can't tell you how many people have walked into my office and sat down and just obliterated. Because out of the clear blue sky, they go home one day and their spouse of 20, 25, 30 years just says, I'm out of here. I don't love you anymore. I'm gone. Just like that. No, you have no control over that. None. But we try. You know, if life could be controlled, who would have had the best shot at controlling it? What human being that spans history of all human beings would have had the, the greatest shot at controlling life? I mean, I think it's an easy question. I think nobody would rival Solomon. First of all, he had all the wisdom that anybody could ever want to have. Second of all, he had all the resources, all the power, all the money, all the authority. If anyone could have ever controlled life, it would have undoubtedly been Solomon. Undoubtedly. And yet he writes an entire book called Ecclesiastes that's about the vanity of life. And here's what he says in Ecclesiastes 9. I returned and saw that the race is not to the swift, the battle's not to the strong, the bread is not to the wise, riches are not, is not to men of understanding, nor favor to men of skill, but time and chance happen to them all. That it's all just vanity. That everything you think is going to be, no matter how hard you try to stack the deck in your favor, it's all just vanity. And then why is that? Is that the, is that the fallenness of, of, of the world? I don't think so. I think God rigged it that way. I think that's by perfect, sovereign design. Do you know what God wants you to know? He wants you to be reminded every single moment of every day that you're a creature, not a creator. That this isn't your world. That you're not the boss. That you're not sovereign. And you can rail against it, you can fight against it, but it's not going to do you any good. You were born into someone else's kingdom. Whether you like that news or not, he and he alone sits on the throne. Make no mistake about it, it's a throne. It's not a love seat. You can't come up there and sit next to him. You know, and kind of, co-manage it doesn't work that way it's a throne only one person sits on a throne you can't sit on his lap you can't squeeze in beside him it's his throne he's in control the quicker we gain understanding of this the better off we're going to be the bible says in psalm 135:5, for i know that the lord is great and our Lord is above all gods. Whatever the Lord pleases, He does. Whatever. In heaven or in earth. Now, how, how do we respond to that? Because I, I really, I just want to be practical with you. I want to help us respond to the reality that we can't control. We've never been in control. There's nothing we can do to gain control nor do we even want control because it's not what God intended for us to be in. But what do we do? What do we, well, where do we go with all of our control? What is the antidote to the problem of wanting to control or, not, or being fearful of being out of control or all of these things? What, what do we do with them? Well, the solution to control is easy to say. It's a little more complicated to execute. But the solution to control is surrender. Let me show you how the Scripture teaches this. Now, surrender is a big word, and it encompasses a lot of things. So I want to break it down into three small groups. I, I want you to think of surrendering into three chunks. The first area of surrender is 
you need to surrender your fear. Surrender your fear. Now let's talk about this for a minute. You see, as long as we allow fear to influence our decisions, we're going to remain in bondage to control because control is fed off of fear. There has to be fear there. Anyone who is seeking to control something, believe me, just, just take my word for it, underneath that is fear. It's always on a bed of fear. So we need to think about, well, what are we afraid of? Because you, you can't just let go of control, surrender your control of something, because you're, it's just going to come right back. What you have to surrender is your fear of something. If you surrender your fear, then you'll let go of control. But if you don't let go of the fear, letting go of the control is useless. So, what are we afraid of? Well, a lot of things. But I'm going to give you some things that, that plague most of us. The most common things we're afraid of. We're, we fear rejection. We fear rejection. So when we fear rejection, we seek to control relationships that we're in. We fear rejection, and so we, we don't ever truly experience community. When we fear rejection, we keep people at a safe distance. We don't let them all the way inside. We don't open up all the way because if we do, then we're afraid that rejection is going to be that much more painful. So we keep everything at a distance. And it usually stems from some past relational hurt that creates in us this, the, this fear of rejection. And nobody wants to be rejected. But what do, we, what do we know about fear? Boy, the Bible is so instructive about fear. I remember years ago I was just reading the Bible and I kept stumbling across passages that were relating to fear. And so I started this uh, I was just doing this study on fear, and I started reading all the passages about fear. And as I was doing that, I was writing them down in my journal, and here's what I started noticing. I mean, this was probably 15 years ago. I started noticing this correlation with fear, that fear, what the Bible teaches us about fear is that fear is a self-fulfilling prophecy. Here's what I mean. Whatever you are afraid of, you bring on yourself. The fear of rejection, for example. The fear of rejection causes you to keep people at distance. It causes you to, to never allow yourself to, to be in community. You don't, you don't experience koinonia because you're afraid to be rejected. And so what does the person experience in life who fears rejection? Rejection. Because what causes a person to be rejected? That they're never known, that they're never embraced, that there's never any community. And so you always feel outside. And you're always bewildered. The person who fears rejection, it never fails. They're baffled that it's everyone else's fault that they don't experience koinonia. And they're frustrated with the fact that there's, they're not connected. Yet, it's their fear that just fulfills its prophecy over and over in their life. Okay, what about the fear of failure? If you fear failure, then, which no one likes to fail, no one enjoys failure... But when you fear failure, it paralyzes you. Nothing is ever accomplished because to accomplish anything takes risk. And so someone who fears failure accomplishes little to nothing. You see, you become a failure. Whatever you're afraid of, you will become. If you are afraid of being alone, what are you going to do? You're going to smother everyone around you because you're so afraid of being alone that as soon as they get a chance, they're going to leave you alone. So I don't know what you're afraid of, but I can promise you this. Fear is an evil master. It's an evil, wicked master. 
And what I hope you hear me say tonight is whatever it is you're afraid of, it's coming on you. You're actually bringing that thing upon yourself. So what do we do with, say, fear of rejection? Well, your fear of rejection, the path to overcoming the fear of rejection is to understand that you will never, ever, under any circumstances, for any reason, be rejected by Jesus Christ. That's how you overcome the fear of rejection. You take a passage of Scripture like Romans 8, 38 that says, For I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor powers nor principalities nor things present nor things to come nor height nor depth nor things created can, will ever be able to separate me from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus my Lord. You take that, you write that on a 3 by 5 card. If you fear rejection and you plaster that all over prominent places in your life, you drive down the road with that thing on your dashboard, constantly reminding you that you can never be rejected by Jesus. So you have no need of fearing rejection of people because the most important relationship a person can ever have, you are utterly and completely secure in. And it will defeat the fear of rejection. The fear of the gospel, the pathway to overcoming the, or I mean the fear of failure is to, the pathway to overcoming the fear of failure is to walk the path of the gospel. That the gospel will continually push you to, to take risks, to do things that are scary, that are frightening. You open the Bible and say, God, whatever you say, I'm going to do. That's scary. It's scary. But I can tell you this, it'll obliterate the fear of rejection. Just ask the Children of Israel, what do you think all the, the people in the Persian Empire thought when Nehemiah and his band of compadres built their little booze on the top of their houses and shacked up for a week? They're going, what are you doing? What kind of wacko, nutsoid God do you serve? I mean, if you're worried about rejection, I'm pretty sure you're not going to sleep in a, 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 a pile of bushes on your roof for a week. You see, but that's what it is. It, obedience to God, walking in the gospel, it will, it will obliterate your fear of failure and your fear of rejection because God's going to call you to do things that, quite frankly, are going to seem crazy. And so you're, you're going to learn to walk in faith. What about the fear of man? I mean, boy, there's a heinous one. When we fear man, really what happens with the fear of man is we attempt to control the behavior of those around us because the fear of man usually is projected on other people. Usually a person who fears man has, has propped themselves up and, and lives in such a strict, confined, legalistic environment that they then put the tentacles of their fear out into the people around them because what we don't want if we fear man is we don't want our kids or anyone in our family or anyone associated with us to act in such a way that's going to make anybody think poorly of us, that's going to damage our reputation. That's the fear of, that's that, the fear of man and how it, it spreads out and starts just... Uh, weaving its way into all of our relationships. So then you, you're the, the person who fears man, I mean, oh my goodness, they just relentlessly ride their children not to ever do anything or step out of line or embarrass you. This is why so many pastors have horrible children. Because they raised them under the fear of man. They were so worried about everybody in the church watching their kids, every move that they make, that they smothered their kids. So their kids grow up, and as soon as they get out of the house, they go absolutely bananas. Because they've lived under oppression all their life. Because everybody's eyeballs are glued to everything they're doing. And so what you have to do is you have to overcome that. You have to realize, hold on, I cannot control I can't control the behavior of everybody around me. I can't do that. I can't be consumed with worrying about what other people think. Because what happens to someone who does that? What does the fear of man do? 
The fear, think about this now, the fear of man, most commonly, it will make us want to control everyone around us so that no one thinks poorly of us. You ever known anybody like that? If you have, here's what you know about them. They're the most miserable people you'll ever meet in your life. They are absolutely miserable. You know why? Because trying to control the people around you will drive you insane. Insane. And so guess what? The person who began this journey afraid of someone thinking poorly of them or damaging their reputation becomes the most miserable, joyless person you've ever met in your life now has a reputation as the most miserable, joyless person you've ever met in your life. Like that was a brilliant endeavor. It's a self-fulfilling prophecy. What is the pathway to overcoming the fear of man? Well, having a greater fear of God. The problem with fearing man is that you, you put the fear of what other people's opinions of something are over what God thinks about it. And so what you've got to do is you've got to prioritize the gospel in your heart. So, for example, you take a passage of Scripture like we studied in Galatians chapter 1, verse 10, where Paul says, For do I now persuade men or God? Question mark. Or do I seek to please men? Or if I still please men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. He's talking to people who were ate up with the fear of man, who were completely engrossed in the false gospel of legalism, and he tells them the solution, the problem you have, is that you don't fear God. You're so worried about what other people think, and it's destroying you, and it's making you miserable. And the reputation that you're working so hard to protect. You know, the, the, the person in the family that's trying to control everybody. That's trying to make sure that nobody thinks poorly of them. What happens every single time... Me or you or anybody else goes and spends time with anybody in that family. If I go have lunch with anybody in that family, at some point in that conversation, they're going to say, oh, she's driving us all crazy. She's, he's making me nuts. They try to control everything that we do. Now, here's why I'm bringing this up. They're telling me this, and you this, and everyone else who will listen to this. Everybody else in the world knows it, except them. They're still dead set on controlling. And yet everyone they're trying to control, that they have the illusion of... And I say, well, why do you, you know, well, why do you, why do you play along? Well... Oh, they just, they'll just freak out. Well, they're going to freak out eventually because eventually they're going to find out. The curtain's going to pull back and they're going to realize it's Puff the Magic Dragon that they've invested their whole life in. You just become paralyzed. The, the path to letting go of fear. Maybe, maybe you fear the unknown. You know, I'm not, I'm not especially fond of the unknown. I, I, don't, I, I don't think that uh, I love the fact that, you know, I have absolutely no, no idea what's coming around the next corner. I mean, I don't like that one bit. But boy, do I love the fact that I know who does know. I mean, whenever you, whenever somebody says to me, I just don't know how you do it. I don't know how you, I don't know how you don't go insane. I don't know how you handle the pressure. I don't know how you handle the stress. I mean, everybody's problems. It's never ending. It's just relentless. Pow, 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 pow. 
And everybody, everybody starts out the same way. Pastor, can I have five minutes? Okay. I'm still waiting for that five-minute conversation. And when they get done with their 45-minute, you know, saga of all their problems, you just stack it on top of the pile, and then they're like, you know, they look around at the hundreds of other people around, they go, I don't know, how, how do you do it? Well, how you do it is, I'm not in control, praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. If I thought I was in control, it would have ended a long time ago. You see, the pathway to overcoming the fear of the unknown, how do you overcome that? Do you get freaked out when you don't know what's going to happen? Does it cause you to panic when things go off course and change? Man, I know it does. Because every time I change something, half of you panic. How do you overcome that? Well, what you do is you understand how to value a promise. You see, I used to think back in my naivete that the solution to fearing the unknown, I used to walk around with a 50,000-pound boulder on my back all the time, worried about every little situation and circumstance and but you see, back then, I could manage it because I felt like there was a, a small enough number of people that I could actually keep up with all the problems and circumstances and situations. But as the people began to grow and grow and grow and grow and grow and the boulder began to grow and grow and grow, I realized, wait a second. And at first, I thought the solution is I'm just not trusting the promises of God. But then I realized that's not really the solution. Because promises are not all equal. I mean, the promises of God are, but not all promises are equal. And so what you have to do is you have to classify promises because people promise things all the time, and then they let you down. And so you can't just, you know, you can't just start believing all promises. So you have to figure out, well, why are God's promises different from every other promise? Like, what is the, how do you classify a promise? The value of a promise is two simple components. Number one, it's the trustworthiness of the person making the promise. And number two, it's the capacity or ability that the person has to fulfill the promise. So if, I, I can remember like yesterday when this hit me. If a person who is utterly trustworthy to you comes to you and promises you, I mean, they have never failed you. You've known them for years. They've been, I mean, tried and true. They're as solid as anybody you know. And they come to you and they make a promise to you that they're going to give you a million dollars. Well, if they don't have a million dollars... It doesn't matter how trustworthy they've been. It doesn't matter what their track record has been. They don't have the capacity to fulfill that promise. So first of all, a person needs to be trustworthy. That's how me and you value the, the, the promises between each other. But then you also have to quantify in your head, well, does the person have the ability to fulfill the obligation? Then once you start quantifying promises, then you start reading your Bible with that lens. And you read something like Isaiah 43 that says, But now, thus says the Lord, who created you, O Jacob, and he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by your name. I remember I discovered this and I preached an entire series of sermons on these three texts right here. Fear not for I've redeemed you. 
I have redeemed you. I have called you by your name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, you shall, they shall not overflow you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, nor shall the flame scorch you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. So when God makes that statement, not only does he have a perfect track record of trustworthiness, but he is the only one who has the ability to back that up. So when he says, you are mine, do you understand what it means when God says, fear not for I've redeemed you? That's really all you got to know. The rest of it's just like lanyard. Fear not for I've redeemed you. That means, why would you be afraid when I have paid the ultimate price for you? I have invested the universe's resources into the stock of you. So you don't need to worry about you because I'm the one who has everything riding on you. You didn't slaughter anybody for you. I did. No, you didn't shed any blood for you. I did. You are not the one who ought to be worried about anything. I redeemed you. I paid the ultimate price for you. So you have nothing ever for any reason to be afraid of because I redeemed you. So no matter what fire, no matter what river, no matter what scary thing comes against you, fear not because I'm the one with everything invested and I'm the one who can back that up. And just because you feel safe when your daddy's home because you think he's Superman, he's not. But I am. And I'm with you all the time. I'll never leave you or forsake you. Everywhere you go, I'm there. You see? Once you quantify promises and then you apply that to Scripture, you realize God's promises shouldn't... We shouldn't even call His promises the same thing as our promises. We need a new word for promise, and we'll just call His that. Because when, when I promise you something, it is not... In any way, shape, or form, like when God promises you something. It's not, no matter what it is. You should never think of God's promises the way you think of any other promises, no matter how amazing or wonderful or secure you feel in somebody's word, they're not even in the same universe. So we surrender our fear. We gotta hurry, y'all. Secondly, we gotta surrender our sin. Our sin. Now, this is, again, it sounds, well, yeah, I mean, I know that, but this is hard. Why? All right, let's just get a little theological for a second. What does sin do in our life? It seeks to control us. So, how do we so often, boy, here's where, watch how smooth the devil is. How do we normally, wrongly approach surrendering sin? A person has an ongoing sin in their life. And so they suddenly, you know, think, wait a second. You know, they, they hear a sermon or something happens and they go, I've got to defeat this sin in my life. So, now this sin that has been successful at gaining control of my life, how am I going to defeat this sin? Hmm, I know. I'm going to control it. Oh, well, that makes sense. So what you're going to do is you're going to fight sin with sin. That's the dumbest thing I ever heard of. That's the worst idea possible. If you have a, this is, the, this is the, the cycle that this goes in. You sin, you hate it, you feel guilty, you don't ever want to do it again, and you sin again, and then you hate it, and you feel guilty, and then you sin again, and you hate it, and you, and you go around and around in the cycle of doom, and you can't stop this sin that you hate. And you go, so the solution must be, i got to try harder. No, that's why you're where you are. You're trying to 
use the sin of control to control the sin that's trying to control you, that is a, that's ridiculous. And Satan's just licking its chops the whole time. Yeah, that's what you need to do. Control your sin. Excellent idea. My gosh, that is legalism at its best. Strive harder. Work harder. Behave better. That's the way you combat sin. No. The way you combat sin is the gospel. That's how you combat sin. You don't try to control sin. You don't even... You don't even fight sin. You have to kill sin. And guess what? You can't kill sin. You never have been able to kill sin, and you never will be able to kill sin. Only one person can kill sin, and that's the one who took sin on his back on the cross and killed it once and for all. So the only way to kill sin, the only sin-killing agent that's ever existed in the history of the world is the blood of Jesus Christ. Not your effort, not your striving, not your trying, not your seeking to control yourself. That's not going to do anything. The blood kills sin. Make no mistake about it. You know what control does? Do you know what a person who's seeking to control sin does? You negate grace. Your effort to control sin obliterates grace. Why do you need grace? If you can control sin, you wouldn't need it. But interestingly enough, the one who killed sin knew that you'd never be able to control sin, which is why he put in place this economy of grace, because he knew that you'd fail, that you'd need grace, because that's what he knows. But yet somehow we think we're going to control it. No, we've never been able to control sin. Hence, that's why we need a Savior. I mean, these are just basic 101 gospel applications. Trying to control your sin. What's so disturbing is that every time I say this, I can see people going, uh-oh. Trying to control sin is saying to God, thank you for salvation. I appreciate the cross, but I've got it from here. That's what it is. It's utter insanity. Do you think God... would slaughter his son to give you something that you didn't need? If you, do you think that if there would have been any other way, any easier way, any lesser way, I mean, do you think that God looked at the uh, economy of your sin and he said, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to go ahead and pay the absolute highest price, even though I know I could redeem you for a much lesser, you know, I could redeem you on Amazon for half the price. I'm going to go ahead and pay full retail. Do you think that's how that went down? I mean, no. There was only one way to redeem you, and it was the highest, hardest, most expensive possible way. That's the way God did it. And in doing so, he did it in such a form, in such a fashion, that you would have the grace of God poured out on your heart at salvation, Romans chapter 5, do you think that he gave us this unlimited fountain of grace just to amuse us? Do you think there's a day that goes by that you're not absolutely 100% dependent on the grace of God? There's not a millisecond that goes by that you don't need the grace of God, that I don't need the grace of God. That's why it's there. So if you could control sin, well, then you wouldn't need grace. And anything that says to you or anything that says to me that I don't need grace is a lie. It's a lie. Let me just explain this to make sure that we're clear. 
Here's how most people fight sin. They fight sin as if sin represented the weeds in my lawn, which are spectacular, I must say. So I want to get the weeds out of my grass. I want to fight the, the weeds that are in my lawn. So here's how I fight them. I get on my lawnmower, and I mow them suckers down. And I mow them down the same as the grass. See, I control them. And so I've got it all mowed down even, and I've got them defeated. And then I go in the house, and I go to sleep, and I wake up the next day, and I walk out my front door, and guess what? Ta-da! Every weed grows twice as fast as any grass I've ever seen. And so I say, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to mow harder. I'm going to mow faster. I'm going to mow more often. And so you mow and you mow and you mow and you mow. And you got it smooth sailing all the way. And you go, I got my weeds under control. I got my sin under control. And you just mowing like crazy. And you ain't done nothing. You haven't impacted those weeds. The only way to get the weeds out of your lawn is to rip them up by the root. The only thing in the history of the universe that rips sin up by the root is the blood of Jesus Christ. So you can ride around on your lawnmower for the rest of your life. You're never going to get anywhere because as soon as you stop, they pop up. We clear? Don't try to control your sin. Kill it. Put the blood of Christ on it. Put the gospel on it. The gospel obliterates sin. Well, I'm not sure you're convinced. So how does God respond to our sin problem? What's his solution to your sin and my sin? See, this is what would make sense to me in the, in the world in which we live with this crazy way we go about battling sin, which would explain why everybody's going around in circles like a maniac, like a, you're like a hamster in a wheel. Come on, try harder. Come on, more effort. That's what we got to do. Control that sin. Control that sin. Hmm. Huh. So... If that were true, what God would do is he would, he would redeem us in such a way that he would, he, would somehow, he would somehow give us this incredible fortitude. I mean, he would make us just, uh, you know, just physical specimens of endurance that we, could, that we could just battle. We'd be like sin gladiators. He'd give us all these sin-killing superpowers. He'd give us all these sin-killing abilities. Isn't that what he would do? That's what makes sense to me. So, I mean, we're running around, dying in our sin. And so what he wants to do is he wants to teach us how to kill sin. So we, like, you know, we get saved and suddenly we're all like black belt sin killers. You see how stupid this whole thing is? What does the Bible say? Ezekiel 36, God says, here's what we're going to do with your sin problem. He says, I'm going to give you a new heart. Now understand, this is way before he did. He said, but just so that you know, let me tell you how this is going to work out in the future. This is going to blow your mind. You're not going to get this, but let me just lay this little reality on top of you. There's going to come a day. When I'm going to do something that you are not going to believe. In fact, it's going to, it's going to astonish and astound heaven. I am going to redeem you in such a way that when I do, I'm going to give you a new heart. And in this new heart, I'm going to, 
put my spirit within you. And he says, I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. Now that sounds great, except for I'm not sure I need that. I mean, what's so good about that if you don't explain what the ramifications of that are? Well, good, because that's what God does. He says, so I will put my spirit within you, and when I do this, it will cause you. It won't enable you. It won't encourage you. What's it going to do? It's going to cause you to walk in my ways. And you will keep my judgments and you will do them. Where did we ever get the idea that we kill sin? We don't kill sin. We've never killed sin. Only thing we can do is die in sin. He put a new heart in you. And he put his spirit in you, and his spirit causes you to obey him, to walk in him, to follow him, to honor him. And that's the only way the sin's ever been killed in your life, and the only way it ever will be killed. He does it. Isn't that amazing? And you say, well, I don't know, Pastor. That's Ezekiel 36. Fine. Read Romans 6. Clear as a bell. Paul says, you were, you were, when you were lost, you were what? You were a slave to sin. Huh. Well, that explains a lot. No wonder I just rode around in my lawnmower all the time. I never seemed to get, I was just a slave to sin. Well, that explains it, why I tried and tried and tried, and I could not defeat it. I couldn't get out of it. The more I tried, the worse it got. It was just a never-ending cycle. I was a slave to sin. That makes perfect sense. And he goes, but now you became a slave of righteousness. Oh. So that means that anything Good, that happens in my life. Any advancement that I make morally, any, any, any right uh, move in my behavior, anything that I do that's good in any way, shape, or form is because I am a slave to righteousness. Because my master led me and I followed him because he put a heart in me that causes me to follow him. And that's what happened. So here's the good news. Whew. We don't need to be in control. We don't want to be in control. The last thing anyone who knows the gospel wants is control. Oh, no, 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 no. Why would you want control? You have a built-in controller who's, who is 100% guaranteed to always do the right thing the right way at the right time. Always. He's the only one who can make a promise who's utterly trustworthy and absolutely capable of accomplishing the promise. So I'm like, man, that is the greatest news I've ever heard. Why are we still clamoring for control? Well, here's what I recommend you do. Thirdly, you surrender your sin because you got to figure out what the, I mean, your fear, because you got to figure out what your fear is that's creating you to be in bondage to control. Surrender your fear, then surrender your sin, and then surrender your lives daily. And here's what I mean by that. I mean, we started in Luke chapter 9, and when Jesus said, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily. He was sending us a message that you see... Although you're justified in the instant that you become a Christian at salvation. And that all of who you are in Christ is secure in that moment. It's going to take a daily recommitment to the reality that is in your life for you to experience the fullness of all that that entails. That every day you wake up and you say, God, I'm so grateful today that you are sovereign and that you are in control.
And I'm so thankful that you're sitting on a throne alone. And that no person, people will ever be able to climb up there, sit next to you, influence you. That you're never going to make a mistake. You're never going to miss a detail. That I, don't, I can just release all of these things I'm afraid of. Thank you for clarifying to me, Lord. That fear is a self-fulfilling prophecy. That in and of itself should make us all just run from fear. Run from fear. If you just wake up every day and surrender that day to God, I think that's how you take up your cross. I think that's how you follow him. You just surrender that day to God. You say, God, it's your day. You work it how you want to work it. I'm yours. What do you want to do? I don't care what anybody else thinks. You've already told me I'll never be rejected. Surrender. That's the antidote to control. Let's stand.